You're listening to the Every Plant Story podcast, where we collect, share, and discover the stories, lessons, and passions behind the people who are always growing more. You're listening to the Every Plant Story podcast, and here is your host, Shane. Hey guys, welcome to season two, episode nine of the Every Plant Story podcast. Uh, This is the podcast where we share all kinds of plant stories from us here in the life of Gabriella Plants and all around the plant community. And I'm so happy to have, just as always, on the podcast, Brett, our head grower here for Gabriella Plants. Hello, everyone. And for those who don't know, I'm Shane Malloy, and I'm the owner of Gabriella Plants, uh, third generation in my family to own the business. And uh, actually kind of cool now that not only we're doing this podcast on video, but we're recording it back at the original location uh, that I grew up at. So who would have thought I'd be doing this in my childhood backyard? I love it. I love it. That's awesome. How have things been in the greenhouse? Amazing. I mean, it's crazy to think that summer's almost over. I mean, where does the time go? It's hard to even catch people up on everything we've been able to accomplish since the last podcast. Right. I mean, if the only way I would say is if you're wherever you're listening, definitely follow us weekly. I think we do weekly updates. And when Mm -hmm. we post every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Central Time, that is kind of when we do our big announcements, if there are any new products or Mm -hmm. anything out there. So, yeah, it is hard to catch people up if they aren't following along week to week just because there is so much. There's so much that we have. I I came over to the greenhouses this morning just to try to lend a hand and I was up early anyway. So it's much cooler in the mornings at the greenhouse. So um, I came over and they were working on picking out all the plants for this week's inventory Mm -hmm. update. And they had already kind of... uh, made it through the majority of the list. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm here to help. How can I help? And uh, Hunter kind of showed me what was left to, to go and pick out. And I was like, yeah, some of those, I'm going to be honest. I couldn't probably pick them out. I'm, I'm struggling to keep up with how <laughs> many plants we've seriously added this year. Uh, it's insane. It's hard I mean, to keep up with. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, which is exciting for the consumer. I mean, we always have something new. We're always growing more, but we're not always just growing the same stuff. Yeah. And I mean, it's also just a living testament to our shipping and our greenhouse teams that can keep them much straighter than I can, uh, <laughs> making sure you get the right plant either and that we're growing each plant the way that they want to be grown in the greenhouse. Well, Brett, I know we have all kinds of stuff we did want to get into on today's podcast. You've been doing lots of research. You have some handy dandy notes with you. This is going to be a really, really interesting and I think eye-opening podcast for all of our listeners. So at the beginning- That is a big sales pitch. Oh yeah. And so at the beginning of every podcast, before we get into kind of the meat of the topic that we're going to cover, we do a couple things at the top. Um, So first I have a botanical term of the day for you. Good. I was looking forward to this. Okay. Hit me. All right. So the term for today is plicate, spelled P-L-I-C-A-T-E, meaning with parallel folds, pleated or corrugated. And so this term would be used in regards to most palm fronds. So if you think of a palm leaf, how it is, you know, corrugated and kind of pleated, Mm -hmm. folded into each other for structure, that leaf is a plicate leaf. Now, is there a reason that we're aware that plants do this? I, I always kind of imagined it was yes. wind aerodynamics. Exactly. Or- it's it's an evolutionary structural adaptation. It allows the plants to have larger leaves and be able to support them 
as well as offering a larger surface area to some leaves that if they they weren't plicate, they just wouldn't be as large. And so, I mean, a lot of these palms that are plicate need to be able to absorb as much sunlight as possible. And so that's why they've kind of evolved this look. Interesting. Now, what's always crazy when you do see them, because I'm glad you mentioned palms as Mm -hmm. the example, because you would also think, at least to me, you know, I'm thinking of like the, um, the fan that right. you like you flip out and it has all those different, you know, sections. Mm-hmm. Those sections are typically, or if you crease a, a piece of paper back and forth, that typically is a really weak spot right. on a piece of paper if you do that enough times. Yet in the palm trees I'm thinking of off the top of my head, it mm-hmm. seemingly as, has more structure and is more structurally sound. Absolutely. And I mean, it all comes down to like physiologically, anatomically, if you look at those folds, the way that they're structured, usually each of those grooves or, or those, those edges are uh, thicker. Um, really? Yeah. So they, the plants know. The plants know and they figured it out. Do we have any idea of when it came to be or what was palms like what first started to? Uh, I mean, plicate leaves are seen not just in palms, um, but for a really long time, leaves have been shaped this way. That's awesome. Yep. That's incredible. Botanical term of the day, everyone. Play Kate. Try to use it in email. And stay tuned (laughs) to the end of the podcast where Brett will also teach me a new pronunciation because I definitely need the help with that. (laughs) So after that, um, we like to cover a few new upcoming plants. Uh, So this, of course, is only good if you are listening to this right away as soon as we release it. But... Uh, it certainly is possible, even if you listen to this a couple weeks later, that something that Four I say years. new could still be on the website because yeah. um, we're always growing more. So I am really excited to share a couple upcoming plants that we have. Uh, so this is actually the first time that I'm making this announcement. All I right. haven't put this on Instagram or anything yet. But so we have been growing philodendron stenolobum from seed. Mm, yes. And so... And by... Growing them from seed, growing a lot of uh, them. Yes. So, yeah, you may think that, oh, okay, we're going to breed philodendron. We're going to set seed. We're going to have to... So we're going to have to harvest all of those seeds and sow all of those seeds. Okay, some of these infructescences have, like, thousands of seeds. Yeah, it's a totally different ballgame we're learning <laughs> than the anthurium, oh, which yeah. can be far more predictable mm-hmm. and reasonable. Exactly. And so it wasn't expected. I'm actually kind of considering this philodendron stenolobum like a virgin conception because right. I didn't pollinate the inflorescence. Oh, okay. I have no recollection of pollinating it. There was no evidence that I pollinated it, so either it pollinated itself, there was a visitor of maybe an insect, or who knows. But so, literally, we just found these seeds ready to go, ready to be harvested, and so we planted them, I believe it was June 28th, and so they're two months old now. Okay. Um, We have our first batch in three inch, and so next week, we will be able to offer, for the first time... A limited batch of three-inch philodendron stenolobum. Why are you so excited about the stenolobum? I know you've told me, but I just... Well, one, it's a really, really cool plant. Um, Mature specimens like the mama plant that these came from has have leaves that are over four feet long. I was going to say, 
the best way you can describe the mama plant is you could take a very cool nap under, <laughs> underneath it. Yes. Yes, the, it is a big plant. It is a really big plant with really big leaves. And Philodendron stenolobum is a thematophyllum type. Um, so some people may believe it got reclassified. Um, but because of that, they have kind of this like arborescent, like tree-like growth habit where they get kind of this real thick trunk mm. that grow up. Mm -hmm. And so obviously the babies still have really small leaves, but seeing them compared to their mom is really, really exciting because as a consumer you can get one of these and watch it grow up. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of us plant people really like that journey. Of well, it's the plant equivalent to when your baby's foot is born or whatever, and you're like, oh, it used to be like, yeah, the size of my thumb <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Like, Make yeah. the mold in the clay. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like we have that. There's a couple different spots yep. in the greenhouses where my, uh, my brothers and sisters and I would like, yeah, at various si sizes as small elementary school kids, put our handprints in there. And, That's awesome. Yeah, then the next time you go to build, you're like, oh, wow. I've grown up a little bit. <laughs> I'm not bit. that small anymore. Yeah, so, yeah, no, but that's always cool to get to see. I mean, plants have to do it too. Animals have to do it too. And anytime that you can, especially with a plant that you know in its mature size is going to get that big, mm -hmm. that's the oh, full, yeah. that's the full it's experience. Because you could so still exciting. grow something from seed, but it's just going to grow a season or, you know, whatever else. And that's cool. Not the five-year payoff photo of right. this could cover barely my eye of a speck <laughs> and now I'm hiding behind the leaf, you know? Absolutely, yeah, Which, absolutely. personal goals, <laughs> that's kind of my, I, I mean, I like that. I, right, I, that kind of fits your personality. If you could just like kind of hide away under plants, mm -hmm. you would. Yeah, uh, any <laughs> any plant I could make a cocoon out of <laughs> is, a, is a plant I want to grow. Yeah, for Shane sure. approved. Yes, it's Shane approved, 100%. <laughs> no, I just, I've always, even before the, the variegated plant craze and stuff, like growing up in plants, especially with, you know, the greenhouses and growing so many small plants, mm -hmm. you know, growing up. It was always, that was the one really cool thing. I mean, downside, you had dad who was geeking out and, you know, trying to uh, tell you what different plants were. But that was the cool part about going to botanical gardens or going to other like plant nurseries that were able to grow some of these huge things and then get to hear that, yeah, they're, they're spending years. Oh, yeah. Years. This one's been there for 20 years. This one's been in this pot for 10 years. And you're like, oh, my goodness gracious. Plants are definitely like a long-term investment. Like you're playing the long game when mm -hmm. it comes to plants, but it's worth it. Yeah, I, just cultivating, cultivating and growing plants brings me so much joy. I'm sure it brings our listeners like so much joy. Absolutely. Like I said, when you can go from that small to that big, that's Woo! like that's an experience that everyone needs to have. Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. It's satisfying. Yeah, it satisfying. is. It is very satisfying. The same as taking two plants that maybe you just have a note or two of and mm -hmm. eventually having enough to share it with your friends. Like, yeah, that is chef's kiss. Right there. <laughs> um, well, tell me about plant number two. Okay, so plant number two is, so this Diefenbachia was really, really big in the market a couple years ago and it kind of disappeared. Um, but I think that the craze is still out there for it and people don't know where to get it. And so I am excited to be offering uh, tonight for the first time Diefenbachia Reflector. Oh, yeah. So Re Reflector is a really, really pretty plant. It's got a lot of color uh, to it. A lot of color, a lot of shine, a really nice growth habit, great for lower light conditions. I think they make a, a super cute, Houseplant. And another one of those houseplants that's not going to stay the size it is now either. Mm -hmm. Like if in a larger form, you can get some really oh, yeah. pretty 
you know, to go in a corner of a room even. Yeah, I mean, I definitely once some of ours continue to get bigger and bigger, I look forward to potting them up and having like, you know, three and an eight inch to be mm-hmm, able to offer mm-hmm. at shop w- will look really nice. Uh, growing up, that was what my grandparents always did. Not with the Diefenbachie specifically <laughs> or whatever, but like they always had the spot for the Christmas tree and then the large houseplant rated. They weren't going to commit you know, murder to a plant that wasn't supposed to live inside, but they would have, it was the same spot either way. That's awesome. And it had to be a living thing yeah, either way. It just had to, well, I guess Christmas tree isn't really huh. living once you've chopped it, but keep it watered. I mean, yeah, yeah it's surviving yeah. Uh, a slow, painful death. Yeah. Um, I have a love hate relationship with that because real big side changes, but like, do you support the plastic thing? Cause I have a very, I cannot stand plastic plants. You know that let's, let's pin that. And let's save it for a seasonal episode because I think we could definitely, like, let's bring on a Christmas tree farmer or something. Let's talk oh, about That's that. a good That'll idea. Good. Yeah. Zach, wherever you are, <laughs> start finding us a Christmas tree farm. <laughs> Actually, like, th- those are all probably up north, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Because as I was say, you probably don't get great growing p- conditions for those down here. That's a good question. Yeah. We'll look into that. Yeah. We'll let you know. So stay tuned. Future podcast. Luckily, we have a little bit of time before the holiday season's (laughs) left. Um, Well, that's awesome, Brett. I love getting here. I mean, like you said, there's so many new plants. It's amazing. And honestly, there's been so many these last couple of weeks. I've had to just, how do you even say this? (laughs) Can you help me out here? What what is this related to? Oh, okay. That makes more sense. And um, I think it's an unknown thing even right now, although um, we have had a ton of people be able to participate with it, but not only do you have a ton of material prepared for things like these podcasts, but you're also going to be, you have been and will continue to be offering a lot of our botanical classes that we were doing at shop online, streamed across the United States, the world for free. Um, So definitely go register for those at plants.ly slash learn. Um, But I always love getting to watch those, especially the material that you have presented a time or two now because that's how many times it takes me to finally learn how to say some of these words. So I need the repetition. So keep it up. Just keep it up. These botanical lecture series that we've been able to produce here are really, really incredible, highly educational. I know I'm biased because I'm teaching them, but I think that they're pretty fun to watch. Oh, yeah. Um, And so if you aren't familiar with what we're talking about, definitely go check that link out that uh, Shane just mentioned. Um, But currently we have three that we produce. So we have an introduction to houseplants that everyone tells me, pulls me aside after, and they're like, you know, it's not really like a beginner intro. It's more like a college-level intro. And so take that as you will. And then we do an advanced propagation workshop. And then we also do an epiphyte mounting workshop. Um, Awesome. And you're working on more. I'm working on- That's not where it ends. Right. I'm working on a fourth. It's going to be specialized plant adaptations, which is going to blow everyone out of the water. I I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm super excited. That's awesome. Definitely go check those out. Um, We do them every month. Well, I know you also came- to the podcast today with some new discovery research. So do you want to lay that this on This one is, okay, so this isn't the main topic that we're talking about for today, but this discovery, just as of this year, just as of a couple months ago, this paper was published that the world was told about this new plant that okay. was discovered. All right. It's a new Nepenthes species. Okay. okay? So carnivorous. Nepenthes pudica. So it's native to North Kalimantan, which is on the island of Borneo. 
So think okay. Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, so also the, the botanical, the species epithet pudica is Latin for bashful. Okay. And so the reason that they named this new Nepenthes this is because they discovered this Nepenthes that grows pitfall traps, the pitchers, mm-hmm. underground. What? To trap underground invertebrates and animals. Whoa. And so this is the first ever recorded discovery of a carnivorous plant growing and and not just growing as an anomaly, but growing purposefully underground to trap underground living things. So were there obviously multiple then if they're going as far as to say this is a species? It's not like this is one oh, plant yeah, no, under they, one they leaf that they found doing locations where this Whoa. plant is um prevalent. Oh man, I have so many questions. Like one, <laughs> if you're now underground, how is it being how is it moving? How is it spreading? So okay, so the way that they discovered the plant was they found leaves and stems of this Nepenthes above ground that lacked pitchers, which is abnormal. So okay, sure. it does still flower above ground. So they found a plant with flowers and leaves with no pitchers, and they were like, this is weird because it should have pitchers. And so they kind of tried to follow that back. And what they ended up discovering is the plant has these parts that it puts above ground that do produce chlorophyll and photosynthesize and they're green, but most of the plant itself is underground and the stems and the leaves are, uh, they don't have chlorophyll. They're, they're white. I was going to say, cause yeah, they probably they, look totally and different. So it's, it's growing the same way that a rhizome or, you know, any Anything, sort of creeping tubular. Plant would. Yeah. And so it, pushes through the substrate, and then once it finds natural cavities in the ground, it creates those pitchers in that cavity. So when they went to discover this plant, they literally were, like, digging in the ground, found this, like, hollowed-out area, and were pulling out the pitchers. The craziest thing is, and it just goes to show how little we know, especially on a lot of these places that are so biodiverse, like Borneo, Madagascar, Amazon rainforest basin like a lot of these places there's so much life that we have yet to discover that they even found while they were doing this discovery they found a worm that was living inside this brand new nepenthes pitcher plant that is a new species whoa (laughs) okay (laughs) now you said that it was also going after invertebrates and and like small, like in, invertebrates, like insects, and then um, small other creatures like worms, and they found some nematodes. And like okay, so it's critters. not it's not yet fall into a weird leaf trap and get eaten by a weird futuristic version of a carnivorous plant as like a human. These are still relatively oh, yeah, small, yeah, yeah. Like five inches. Okay, okay. So they're not the largest ones ever found, just no, the first no, no. to be found the first under- underground. And not just found underground, but working underground, purposefully growing underground. And so I highly recommend if anyone is interested, you can see photos of this plant. You can see all the you can see the uh, like location of where they found it, 
the list of all the different insects, they said they found like 1,300 different organisms in the pitfalls. That's nuts. In in five pitchers, they found 1,300-something organisms. Nuts. Which is crazy. So definitely go check it out. Google Nepenthes pudica, brand new discovery. And I highly recommend reading the scientific uh, paper yourself. All right. So I have one last question about that. And obviously, I have not done, as you just said, to go research the photo. So I haven't seen the photo yet, but does it talk about its orientation? Like in how it was, because like part of how you've explained Nepenthes to me, at least the normal pitcher ones Mm -hmm. is like, they have the coating on the side of the pitcher so that things fall down it. So like Mm -hmm. is gravity working against it being located underground? Well, it seemed that the underground stem was growing like horizontally through the ground, like a rhizome. Okay. But the pitchers themselves in the cavities were oriented kind of all different ways. And I think because you're underground, you're not relying on something necessarily falling into it as you are just hoping something eventually crawls into Gets it. Gets curious enough, yeah. starts going in, but then can't crawl just out. Fu- yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, underground, all those insects and everything, they're constantly zigzagging, moving through tunnels. So it's basically like, oh, they found this giant roomy tunnel, go into it, and there's no exit. And mm. so then they get stuck in it. That's amazing. So cool. Plants are so cool. All right. So what are we talking about on the bulk of today's podcast? All right. So the meat of this podcast is going to be on, and this is a big one, everyone, radioactivity and the effects of radiation on plants. All right. I am in on this. (laughs) So we just need to uh, get us some nuclear power. Yeah. Nuclear power can do it. All right. Um, but other people have been doing it in different ways. And so if you've never heard any, as a listener, if you've never thought about radiation in plants before, this is not something that we at Gabriel Plants are coming up with. No. This is something not that new. Exactly, is not new. And this is actually something that has been used by various government agencies for a while, actually. Um, Not just on houseplants, but on various food crops in general. Really? Yeah, so I have a couple different articles here. Um, And so one of them, let me just... So when it comes to radiating food or plants, the term is called irradiation. So the plants are irradiated. Okay. So all irradiation done through the government is done through the uh, U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Okay. Okay. So they permit three different types of ionizing radiation to be used on foods. Gamma rays from radioactive cobalt-60 or cesium-137, high-energy electrons, and X-rays. Okay. And so... Believe it or not, British and American patents were awarded in 1905 to people who brought up the idea of ionizing radiation to preserve food. Okay, so, so to preserve, I was going to ask, so what? why, number one, because I know there have been some plants that may be the first time um, 
some of folks may be hearing this, but I know that we've been messing around um, with plants from a cosmetic sense, but right. you're saying for preservation of the food? So the, the way that this type of irradiation can be used on food products is a method of sterilization um, as well as controlling uh, or inhibiting growth on some things. Um, so actually... Uh, like low-dose irradiation to control insects in some foods and extend the shelf life of fresh fruits and vegetables. Okay. So they say irradiation is a process by which products are exposed to ionizing radiation to achieve a variety of effects. In foods, radiation sterilizes or kills insects or microbial pests by damaging their genetic material. Irradiation also slows ripening and sprouting in fresh fruits and vegetables... By interfering with cell division. So, even though the USDA has approved all of these different methods, basically it's on potatoes and onions and wheat and various things, they say the only foods treated for commercial use in the United States are just small amounts of spices. So even though they've approved these other methods, they're not actively using them for commercial foods, so they say. Okay, but it is approved. So hypothetically, if I don't run out of soap to wash my potatoes, right. and you have and I happen ability, to have an x-ray machine right. you had laying around radioactive cobalt 60 in my garage yeah. and said, well, I guess it's going to have to do. Yep, you could do it. All right. Well, thank you, government. Um, <laughs> that's When did they do that? So the... The last ones were actually approved 85, 86. Okay. Um, so they, they do say that the only foods treated for commercial use in the United States are small amounts of spices. Less than 5% of spices in the United States are irradiated and they are used in processed foods. But all of those irradiated spices, as long as they're used as ingredients in something and not sold just loose as is, it is not required to be disclosed on the retail label that those spices were irradiated. Interesting. So if I did have an x-ray machine in my backyard, I still have to put a <laughs> label on the front of my corn or whatever and say this was cleaned in this by hypothetical an situation, yes, absolutely. All right. Well, at least I'm glad for some um, level of transparency required here. Um, <laughs> why exactly did they propose this or approve this? Who was asking them? I think with a lot of scientific research and discovery and grants and funding. It's just that it could be done. Exactly. Okay. They're just looking to see how can it be used potentially maybe one day in the future to do something. Now, I know they do a lot of things to preserve food. They'll, they'll coat it with some wax and different things. Right. And so this article, I mean, I'm only giving a, a, you know, a couple snippets from this like 47-page article that was put out um, – by, by the FDA, uh, but the article basically goes over that it could be used for all these things, but it currently isn't being used, essentially boils down to cost. Okay. It's super expensive to irradiate all these foods when we have other chemical or synthetic ways to do the same process. Right, right. And your doctor can't charge you nearly as much for an x-ray if you find <laughs> out that every carrot you've ever eaten has gone through an x-ray machine. That is a great point. That is a great point. Um, and so I think before we move on to houseplants, I do just want to put out there before everyone gets up in arms, because I know this is something your wife Miriam brought up when we were discussing this the other night, that she said, well... 
what is the potential for the radiation to come from those things that have been mm, irradiated yeah, to carry on it, to carry on yeah. um, into what you were eating. And so they say, of course, this article is being released by the government. So it's the government claiming mm-hmm. that In the this 80s. is something the government does. Yeah. Right. So they say, although irradiated foods are exposed to radiation, they do not become radioactive when irradiated with FDA approved sources. Essentially, the FDA caps how strong Got it. The different mm-hmm. rays can be. And so because it is capped at a strength, when using that strength, it doesn't leave any lasting radioactivity. Microdosing on cobalt is, is totally right. cool. Right. Full dose. Not yeah. Not good for human consumption. So cool. But the assumption so basically if because it's such a small percentage or effectiveness mm-hmm. on the plant, it's not really at risk of being something yeah, to so, humans. It's kind of crazy to think, but you can expose something to radiation and its genetic makeup can be altered, but it still not be radioactive. Because the idea of radioactivity essentially is a lasting effect. It's a sense of that unstableness Mm -hmm. being... Uh, well, it's like energy that doesn't exactly. slow it's, down. Yeah. Exactly. So the just the atomic makeup is kind of off. It's unstable. It's looking for other things to do. Um, it doesn't have a lasting effect on what is being irradiated. It's crazy, though, that that was like extending shelf life is not because, oh, you're modifying this apple to now be a better apple, but because you're able to stop the couldn't be seen by the naked eye. Mm-hmm pest that was on there somewhere or speck of mold that was going to start to take over the plant right. at, at some point in its future. That That is interesting. It's very interesting. And so this idea of irradiating food and irradiating, irradiating plants has also been used by the government and government-funded activities on houseplants. Okay. And so that brings to the, the main topic here the idea of pothos, epipremnum, pearls, and jade. Yes. So I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with the plant that I'm talking about, pearls and jade. So I have here in my hand uh, the the official patent that mm-hmm. was submitted for uh, pearls and jade. So technically, uh, pearls and jade was, the patent was filed under the cultivar name UFM12. Right. A lot of times they don't even... They don't give, give the fun commercial name. Right. They give it a very technical name. I mean, a lot of these laboratories that are patenting plants have hundreds of plants that they're trying to patent just so that they have a stake on the genetic material. It may never even be a plant that sees the light of day commercially. Correct. So they're not thinking to give it a fun name every single time. Right. And I mean, you'd run out of names eventually if you're doing, <laughs> if you're doing that enough. Right. But so this epipremnum plant named UFM12 reads under the description at first uh, at first right under description says acknowledgement of federal research support this invention was made with government support under FLA APO 04158 awarded by the Cooperative State Research Education and Extensive Service USDA the government has certain rights in the invention interesting and so under background of the new plant UFM12 pearls and jade 
originated by exposing cuttings of Epipremnum aureum cultivar marble queen, not patented, to gamma ray radiation from a cobalt-60 source at the Florida Accelerator Services and Technology Division of Plant Industry, Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services in Gainesville, Florida. After treatment, the cuttings were grown in a controlled environment in Apopka, Florida. The inventors selected the new Epipremnum approximately one year later as a single branch mutation within the population of treated plants. So, to put that in layman's terms, they took a regular Marble Queen, exposed it to gamma rays from a radioactive cobalt-60, which normally cobalt is 59, Mm -hmm. and so radioactive cobalt-60, and after being exposed to gamma rays, Marble Queen mutated in such a way to form what you know as Pearls and Jade. Jade. Unbelievable. I remember the very first time I ever read this, mainly looking up what does, because if you don't know, if you're looking and trying to identify a plant, if it does have a patent out there, those patents are all Googleable. Oh, They're yeah. all on the oh, internet. Yeah. So sometimes if you are and you are dealing with something that is patented and you're trying to find what 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 makes them different, mm-hmm. is one have a larger leaf than the other? So I've been on this once or twice before. But I didn't fully understand the fact that it was in a government partnership as well. However, I will say, very convenient for UF to have both an engineering (laughs) department that knows what they're doing with radioactivity and other engineering feats of mankind, along with being an agricultural school. Right. And I mean, not everyone can just walk into the Florida Accelerator Services and be like, hey, I want to use your gamma ray technology to do some experiments. Like, you know, it's not that easy. So... Being a, yeah, being a uh, collegiate institution. Right, with the gives access you, to it. Exactly, gives you access to work with a lot of these things. Which we talked about on the podcast a little bit off topic, but like we can't wait till some of the, maybe not gamma ray <laughs> radiation, maybe that's not the right example, but things like DNA sequencing, like right now that's still mostly behind the academic mm-hmm. or, you know, large institutions right. have that technology, but we're getting better and better. Now you can buy a microscope that also records 1080p video. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the exact same thing, but these things will get to a point where consumers and at-home hobbyists can start to mess with things. Again, maybe not to that. To say though, <laughs> segue to, I don't think that particular part of the plant industry is going to be advertised as a can-do-at-home activity anytime soon. And, I mean, that brings up a whole slew of various, you know, follow-up questions of if, to give some background, like tissue culture right now. Tissue culture, let's say five, ten years ago, was something that was only done by big laboratories. Mm -hmm. It requires a really large amount of monetary startup to do it. It requires a really sterile uh, environment to do these tissue culture um, uh, plant production um, effectively. Yeah, at least at true scale and effectively. even just in the past two years, we've seen so many more kind of at home, in your basement, in your walk-in closet type mm-hmm. setups where now you can tissue culture at home if you really wanted to get into it. Right. Um, and so you, that kind of brings the the skepticism of will we get to a point where people are microwaving their own plants and dealing with that? And so 
so many questions come up as in well, like the, the first question that came to mind is I don't know if you caught it, but at the end of that paragraph you read it said this one was selected out of the countless other mm-hmm. ones. So I want to know what didn't get selected and why. Well, so there is also another patent that I found for UFM ten. So okay. Pearls and Jade is UFM twelve. UFM ten was also uh Epipremnum Orium that was uh, undergone gamma ray radiation to cobalt 60 and the one single branch, branch mutation was selected out of it and it essentially looks like a super super contorted jade pothos and so there it it would seem that the this type of or this level or this amount of gamma ray radiation of specifically cobalt 60 seems to make a more contorted plant, mm-hmm. a more uh, tighter growing plant. The leaves aren't as large. I mean, if you compare Pearls and Jade to Marble Queen that it came from, you can distinctly see different. the difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and also, the this now genetic change that has happened in Pearls and Jade is stable, mostly stable. Which is, yeah, that was a whole other question because wouldn't you think that that would... Right, you, I mean, you get an X-ray all the time. You don't walk out living <laughs> the rest of your life, you know, where others can see right. you in that form, you know, because again, right, and it doesn't alter you in any way, at least that we know of now. So yeah, or or if it does, there's probably <laughs> ways that your body it's in such small amounts that your body does have time mm-hmm. to eventually, hopefully, figure and out I what's think- wrong. But clearly, this has been. I mean, we've known about pearls and jade how long has it been on the market yeah, 10 so years something like that pearls and jade patent was 2007 let's see uh 2009 dang it's pretty close yep 2009 um oh man a recession let's get <laughs> let's get out the let's get out the uh particle accelerator and but i think it just comes down to the levels and the types of radiation that the plant undergoes and so kind of bringing it back to all those those questions I have is if people do start doing this at home, the idea of how ethical is it and how safe is it? Because mm-hmm. I assume that at the Florida Accelerator Services where they're doing this, which is a government laboratory, they are doing everything to protect the environment that they are accelerating these cobalt-60 particles that is safe. It's probably mm-hmm. in some sort of contained area that the only thing being or go, undergoing the radiation is the plant that's in probably this like tube or something mm-hmm. that they're containing it. And they're behind the thing that every x-ray you've ever gotten to, they right. go behind the little wall. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then they hit go. So it's same reason, you know, it, with microwaves, there's all the coating inside the microwave. You would never want to run a microwave with the door open because then you're going to let all the microwaves out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, our bodies just shouldn't undergo certain types of radiation. It's not natural. That's It's right. like literally just, but, it is not natural. That is the point of radioactivity is it is not natural. It is unstable from how it normally should be. But on the flip side, it is kind of natural too because we get tons of gamma rays from the sun. It's not like humanity created right, right. nuclear technology. Right. We just have figured out a way to harness it in a way that it can be, Absolutely. like you're describing, strategically applied to this room, this plant, this time. I mean, my mind even goes to next. Like, yeah, did they do it bare root? Because what if you got like a real, if you heaven forbid had a nematode in that soil mm-hmm. and then you you pumped it up 
now you got a super a, mite, you right. know, or something else coming That's out of the lab. Question. And we would, I mean, yeah, I think only time would tell and only more testing would tell. But so it, the story, I would say, thickens in that uh, one of my uh, plant grower friends has told me, this was about a year ago, that uh, he deals a lot with growers overseas. Mm-hmm. And he imports a lot of plants. And so he said that he met a grower in Thailand who told him that you could give him whatever plant and he could turn it Aurea yellow variegated. That yeah. he had figured out the specific wavelength that was necessary that to he flip could that switch. to flip the switch, put whatever plant in front of that radiation and it would then start growing yellow variegated. Which then begs... Begs a lot ones, of questions yeah. because the like the Department of Health in Thailand is basically non-existent. They maybe don't have the same laws or the same workplace protocols in place that like if these growers are doing this because the plant craze is really really crazy right now and they know that they can f- they can flip a plant and make a buck. Mm-hmm. Are they doing this safely? Right. Well, I mean, to on the con. Like on the counter to that, people have been spray painting plants and doing all kinds of things to plants to make them not what they appear to be. Right. But if it's, I don't want to say as simple because clearly neither mm-hmm. of us know how to do this. So it's not <laughs> that simple. Uh, I can fill pots with dirt. Uh, you know, that, that's a lot easier. But, uh, or soilless potting medium since I'm on the podcast you, and I have to, have to obey Brett's rules. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. <laughs> but yeah, it begs the question of how does that, does that plant then eventually revert? Is there even, you know, like we started this whole thing on, you were talking about if you did it to a potato, and then you went to your grocery store, you'd have to say, hey, this, mm-hmm. these plants have, you know, th- this food has been subjected right. to this. Well, obviously food has a different level of transparency required right. ever since they put nutritional labels and things on food. What, there is nothing to, there is nothing in the no. plant industry to, to indicate where this variegation came from or a right. Geiger I mean, meter that, to that try kind to measure. Of opens it. the question with every variegated plant. Like if we've only ever had a regular goldie eye, philodendron goldie eye, and then somewhere from overseas a yellow mm-hmm. variegated philodendron goldie eye comes from, we assume that it's tissue culture sport mutation, mm-hmm. or that someone had seeds and one of the seeds came out variegated, because that is how we typically assume that variegation appears. Mm-hmm. But if this technology is out there and there are growers that are starting to utilize this technology, I think we now also need to be thinking, was this plant irradiated? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think whether it is going to revert back or stay stable, I think it could stay stable. I mean, look at Pearls and Jade. Pearls and right. Jade doesn't become Marble Queen mm-hmm. again. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's ethical. Or, is, or that it's is, as healthy as a plant. Because, I mean, we can grow very, very healthy pearls and jade. Mm-hmm. But, but it's never going to be as vigorous no, as Marble Queen. No, it's never nowhere going to near. be as vigorous as Marble Queen. Marble Queen's leaves will get much larger as it grows vertically. And, I mean, which is part of how you really, like, start to... And this isn't even because of the gamma ray radiation mm-hmm. problem, but any of the... Clearly, something happened and this plant is behaving far different than mm-hmm. the original 
cultivar in that species, most of the time, if you can get them to climb vertically or you stress them out with enough of winter and other things that they know, I'm not saying they revert and all of a sudden become a marble queen again, but that is normally the breaking point of stretching them because like you said, it won't go back to being a marble queen. Mm -hmm. So it's not just going to get to eight foot tall and be identical to marble queen. And it's likely to have some form of, wait a second, we don't understand this part of the well, genetic I, code anymore. I mean, Enid at NSC does have a pearls and jade growing up her tree. I've seen a mature pearls and jade with leaves over two feet long, and it's still a pearls and jade. It's still yeah, smaller and it's contorted. Like the it is, it's not as long. The leaf margins, the leaf edges aren't symmetrical. Like it is, those leaves are super contorted and weird. Really, but they're big. They get big. Okay, is it ethic? I mean, yes, it's not as healthy as the other plant, but right. is it really that unethical? We, I, pearls and jade, I don't think is, so for listeners, if you're going to hear this, I'm not sure if, uh, Zach, our, our magician behind the audio is going to be able to fix this. We do have rain starting yeah. and we are in a metal building, so you may hear that in the background, uh, but we're going to continue yeah, on. Yeah, I'll just go yeah, through I it. Yeah, I love it. Um, I don't consider pearls and jade unethical because it was done scientifically in a controlled area. I just think about these places, these growers overseas that maybe, I mean, just like us, like the plants that we produce are our livelihood. And so if they know that they can mass expose their entire crop to these different radiation technologies are and maybe they are doing it super super correctly maybe they Mm -hmm. do maybe they are being very careful when it comes to public health i can't speak on that because i'm not there i don't see how they do it but what we're speaking to is just the fact that yeah not even to say that it is a bad thing or that they are doing it incorrectly but it just brings up the question of do we know where this variegation came right, from, from, like just off the bat, and not even that's a bad thing. We could find out later the aurora variegate, like that color mm-hmm. in a ring of fire, was done that way, right? And still be like, well, it's one of the cooler plants I have it's that true. are big. So you know, it doesn't necessarily make or break it to the end consumer, right? But it definitely does begin to question what is a new species mm-hmm. and if the plant community is going to respond to something being a new species because it was hybridized or bred to be that way or at the minimum, even if they did subject it to radiation, that it's been documented, that we know that that's how right. it came about and now we, there may be many variegated plants out there, maybe even including from the United States and from the University of Florida. Right. Um, it wouldn't be the first time that there's been rumors out there of particular cultivars across not just house plants, but many different plants that were given to a trial grower or were given to somebody yep. because they have to make sure that it's going to be viable, you know, before they file the patents and stuff. And maybe they even gave up on it. And maybe the university called them back and said, yeah, it didn't grow so well. Okay, that's sad to hear. Yep. Well, just throw them in the trash can, I guess. Yeah. And there may be a couple of those floating out there that by now, what? 85 or 82 would have been 50, no, 20, 40 years ago. Sure. 40 years ago, you know, that's a long time to not have the written record for that greenhouse to have changed ownership or whatever else. There may be some of these species that not only what to make come in the future, but that 
may already be in the history books that, that we is, just don't know. That is know. very true. And I think it just comes down to transparency in the houseplant market and the houseplant mm-hmm. industry where, I mean, we do a really, really, really amazing job here at Gabriel Plants and telling every plant's story um, and, and, you know, just recording the story and being able to offer that to the consumer so that they know, I mean, literally the day that the plant was Mm -hmm. planted, they know, like we tell them everything we can. We tell them everything we know and more. Right. Exactly. Um, But yeah, there are, there are a lot of places, especially when you're doing an import or something from overseas. Um, I mean, or buying here from in-state. I don't want to sound like I'm coming from, coming for people overseas. Like there just should be a level of transparency that's, currently doesn't exist and so as a consumer you need to be aware of it that's Mm -hmm. kind of what i what i'm doing here is not to say don't buy variegated plants from overseas i'm just trying to no it's no it's an ethical dilemma that will be potentially something we wrestle with in the future which is is this variegated plant a sport like you were saying or was it artificially induced and i think if you rewind before the most recent, and this isn't the first variegated plant craze, but mm-hmm. we're in the most recent one currently, right. there's a reason why the majority of the other 30-year span in between these crazes or however much time go by that this is not the priority of most growers. Right. They're harder to grow. They're inconsistent mm-hmm. compared to the root species. You know, So it'll also be interesting to see if consumer demand is more variegation, more variegation, more variegation. Mm-hmm. Um, we may even end up with something that uh, it d- probably does or maybe doesn't in the pat- pearls and jade patent tell you how much like scientifically radiation was administered, but what's to say we can't turn it to four times that and hit right. go, you know, and I don't know, that could also give us something really, really cool mm-hmm. and something that we haven't been able Absolutely. to do before. Um, but it is interesting Correct me if I'm wrong. I, I joked earlier about that. If you had a mite in there, then you nuked it. You'd yep. get this super mite. Every patent I've ever seen that references gamma, the way you said contorted mm-hmm. and smaller, that seems to be yeah. the general. It's not like they're plugging, they're, they're putting it in there and then getting a leaf that's twice as big. Right. The corn is Hulk way gamma, thicker. Right. It's you not know. Hulk gamma ray radiation. Right. And I guess it's <laughs> to say, yeah, if you do something unnatural to the plant, the plant's going to have an unnatural response to it. Um, if you were to give it its vitamins, right, you'd get a stronger and healthier greener leaf or you know larger leaf. But this is a completely different way I to mean, impact it's plants gen- forever. It's genetically, it's changing the plant genetically. Like that's not just. I mean, that should not be taken lightly. Like that is serious. That is altering the DNA of the plant. And we haven't covered it yet in the podcast, but maybe for a future one. Um, I mean, they're also using the CRISPR technology and that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. Um, But of course, that gives a different level of control over what you're doing. Right. Um, You're really going in there and flipping the light switches you want to flip. When you use CRISPR technology, which is like gene splicing, you're doing that with a more like fine-tuned pinpoint. You kind of know what you're looking Mm -hmm. and going in for and looking to change. Whereas I feel... With a lot of these gamma ray um, experiments, it's kind of a let's put it in there and see what happens. Experiments, the right word. Yeah, yeah. it's let's see, let's see what comes out. Yeah, the other let's end. see what comes. That's amazing. Um, any other notable ones that come yeah, to your so mind? Yeah, so I have the kind of uh, saving this for the last. If the pearls and jade thing hasn't blown your mind, then this I think will really shed light on uh, 
the idea or the potential of radiation on plants. So if you're not familiar with what I would call a grafted color top cactus, they're mm-hmm, also sometimes mm-hmm. called, called a moon cactus. I have one here. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a uh, kind of traditional looking cactus stem and then a very nice pumpkin-y looking cactus on the top. So it is a, gymnocalcium is the genus of those brightly colored cacti that's on top, and it's grafted onto a dragon fruit, right. a hylocereus. Two different ones. So two different cacti. When you go to your big box store and you see one of these, you know, at the checkout line and you decide to take it home because it looks super, super cute, it is two different cacti there. You have a, an arid growing gymnocalcium grafted onto a epiphytic jungle cacti. Completely different types of cacti grafted together. The question that comes up when looking at this is, the grafted color top is grafted together because the colorful cacti that's up top, the gymnocalcium, does not have the ability to photosynthesize. So it has to be grafted onto the dragon fruit in order to survive. So the age-old question of which came first, the chicken or the egg, it kind of pertains here, is how do you have a cacti that ever existed if it does not have the ability to photosynthesize? If it doesn't have the ability to grow on its own, how did it ever once grow on its own to be able to be grafted? And what's weird is I grew up knowing, because my dad was obviously a nerd, uh, about plants. (laughs) Um, I grew up knowing that it was grafted. But even if I didn't know that, it is interesting, like you said, just off a base observation. Yeah, you've never seen just the top part in a nice little pot, even though I would 100% buy that if that was available. Because if the bright yellow, bright orange, bright red, or bright pink cacti was in a pot by itself, it would die. It does not have the ability to photosynthesize. So, how did it happen? Right. I was told this story by... Long time grower, long time cactus grower at one of the best cacti places I know here in Florida. And he told me the story that kind of has been passed down. It's not something that I think has ever been proven hardcore. Yeah, not a ton of research out there. Right. For it. There's no scientific paper that you can find on this, but this has been passed down. It's cactus lore. Let's call it cactus okay. lore. That's a okay. good podcast title. Right. So. So the story goes, in 1945, World War II is happening. Okay. And in Japan, and still to this day, Japan is really, really big in cacti and succulent breeding Mm -hmm. um, and and growing. And there are some amazing cacti and succulent growers in Japan that have these incredible specimens that they produce, like in mass. So the story goes that shortly after the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, these cacti growers that survived started to find gymnocalcium in their collections that had mutated and were producing literally bright yellow, bright orange, bright red, and bright pink cacti that had lost the ability to photosynthesize. And so them being cacti growers themselves, 
obviously knowing that this was bizarre and crazy, wanted to save these plants. So doing the thing that a normal cacti grower would do, they grafted it onto something to keep it alive. And so then essentially all of the grafted color tops that we have now originated from pups of those original mutated plants. So they're stable enough to grow, but since they can't grow roots, they can keep dividing them. Exactly. It's basically, it's through budding and division. But that all may have come from the original ones. intervention. Exactly. The original ones that developed because of the atomic bomb. These gymno... Ah! I just want to like put that out there again in layman's term. The the gymnocalciums that you see that are on the grafted color tops originated from nuclear bombs. That Radiation is, yeah, from that nuclear is, bombs. Yeah, that is mind-blowing. And it also makes me wonder if there are not... Because we... Not just the United States, yeah. but plenty of countries. When yeah. we were trying to figure it out, we were dropping them all over the place and quite a few of them. Yep. So I wonder if there are more... I mean, a lot of the islands were sometimes even man-made mm-hmm. just so we could kind of like... So I don't know how much you know, natural life of vegetation and stuff were on some of the test islands that I'm I'm speaking even after the war obviously ended and stuff. I wonder if there are other plants that we still don't know exist out there. I would bet money that there are because a lot of these areas, if they're still radioactive now, like Chernobyl, like you can't go in, you can't go in there. Right. So there's no botanist going in trying to find these anomalies that have occurred. Let me find these stronger oak tree. Right. Yeah. Um, so, (laughs) That's... I just, uh, it makes me chuckle to think of all the people that go to their big box store and purchase one of these things and they don't know. They don't know the incredible right? origin story that this plant has. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> impressive. That is, that is really impressive and obviously hard to prove right. if it happened that long ago. Right. But I can't recall a time where they weren't sold in exactly the configuration that yep. they currently are. And They've been around it, my it, entire life. The story makes sense. Yeah. Because how else would it have happened? How else would they be able to get a cactus that can't grow on its own? Like, where did it come from? So That's incredible. Well, thanks so much for sharing that, Brett. That yeah, I'm, is... I, I'm very excited to be able to, yeah, blow some people's, blow up some people's minds. Oh, <laughs> I see what you did there. I yeah. see what you did there. <laughs> And honestly, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do some more research on that too because I'm, I'm, now mm-hmm. I'm just curious if there are any research papers out there of, yeah, we went to such and such island or yep. you know whatever desert and found something else too. Because, I mean, they say, the scientists who, who have gone into Chernobyl say that the plant and animal life is actually thriving even though mm-hmm. it's still radioactive. And some of that I'm sure is just because people aren't. Of course. Anywhere close to it. So go figure when you let nature do its own thing. Wild. Uh, it, it works pretty well. Yeah. Uh, and then mankind comes in and uh, subjects its will. Uh, but no, that is yep. that is fascinating. Well, thanks so much for sharing that, Brett. Of course. Um, that is impressive. Um, before we get out of here on today's podcast, I do want to get to those pronunciations. But is there anything else on this you wanted to say real quick? No, I just think to recap it, uh, I hope it opened our listeners' eyes to a lot of technologies that are kind of out there and being used in the food industry, but also the houseplant industry that you need to consider Mm -hmm. that, you know, there, there are more ways to grow a plant than you may think. Exactly. Exactly. And 
although you may not have access to a spare X-ray machine <laughs> hanging around, um, definitely something to keep your eye on and mm-hmm. see. I, ho- I hope the continued evolution of science being more and more involved in plants just keeps going. Because oh, yeah. this wouldn't be very hard. Oh, it, yeah. if You can't tell me that if the University of Florida obviously knows how to do it, mm-hmm. they could go back and test something, most likely. I'm sure. They probably do have a way to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what we learn as the decades and as technology continues to move forward. Well, before we get out of here, I know it's raining, but you had some pronunciations yes, for me. So uh, a Hoya that we sell... Um, is it? It starts with an N. Uh, is pronounced Hoya numularioides, 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 and so I actually have the etymology okay. of the species epithet numularioides. Um, so I looked this up. I actually didn't know this one, but so numulus actually stands for money or coin, and oides means like or resembling that of. And so it is called Hoya numularioides because the leaves resemble that of coins. A coin. Really? Yep. Sometimes it's, you know, we can get scared oftentimes <laughs> by complicated names. Right. I mean, I do it all the time. Um, <laughs> you know, and you're just like, I did... Uh, what do you do? I don't know. English brain go, what right. do you do with multiple vowels in a row? But uh, if everyone cannot, just knew botanical Latin, it would make sense. And when you start to look up mm-hmm. what the Latin means, even if you don't know Latin, right. but then you finally do look it up and you're like, oh, oh. that makes total sense. Yeah, pedatum. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Right. Like these things that are fairly root Latin. And yeah, if you do hear it like a coin, you're like, yeah, no, that, and That's pretty good. They called it Nepenthes pudica, pudica being Latin for bashful, because it was underground. It was a way. It was bashful. I think that's so... What's a, what a fun way of going mm-hmm. about naming plants is basically you're taking some descriptor of the plant and we're making it Latin and that's what we're going to call it. And it honestly, let's just be real, it sounds a lot higher educated than just calling it uh, the Nepenthes underground. Right. Because, you know right. what I mean? Like, that just, yep. it doesn't have, it is the same meaning. <laughs> right. But, yeah, let's, totally different level of let's make it Latin. educational uh, value there. Absolutely. Well, Brett, it's always amazing getting to do this podcast with you. Thanks so much for being here today. And of thank course. you guys so much for listening to this episode of the Every Plant Story podcast. If you want to watch or listen to more of them, uh, you can go to everyplantstory.com. If you want to get yourself a brand new houseplant that we know you're going to love, Uh, and that we will ship safely from our greenhouse to your house. You can go to our website at gabriellaplants.com. And with that, we'll see you guys next time. Bye. If you have a question for Shane or the podcast crew, you can always email them to podcast at gabriellaplants.com for a chance for your question to be answered in an upcoming podcast episode. Send your questions to podcast at gabriellaplants.com. Looking for your next house plan on a budget? We have one of the widest selections available at gabriellaplants.com with hundreds of options grown just for you and ready to ship directly from our greenhouse to your house. 